And from Rays of the One Light, weekly commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita. The law of karma, bondage or soul release. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. The Epistle of St. Paul to the Galatians contains this often quoted statement, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. In Autobiography of a Yogi, Paramahansa Yogananda tells a story from the life of the Benare saint, Trilanga Swami. A skeptic once determined to expose Tralanga as a charlatan. A large bucket of calcium lime mixture used in whitewashing walls was placed before the Swami. Master, the materialist said in mocking reverence, I have brought you some clever milk. Please drink it. Trilanga unhesitantly drained to the last drop the container full of burning lime. In a few minutes, the evildoer fell to the ground in agony. Help, Swami, help, he cried. I'm on fire. Forgive me my wicked test. The great yogi broke his habitual silence. A scoffer, he said, you didn't realize when you offered me poison that my life is one with your own, except for my knowledge of God is present in my stomach as in every atom of creation. The lion would have killed me. Now that you know the divine meaning of boomerang, never again play tricks on anyone. The well-purged sinner, healed by Trilanga's words, slunk feebly away. Yogananda goes on to say, the reversal of pain was not due to any violation of the master, but came about through unreading application of the law of justice, which upholds creation's father's swinging orb. Men of God realization, like Trilanga, allow the divine law to operate instantaneously. They have banished forever all throwing cross currents of ego. Not by reason alone, but by self-realization, are the ins and outs of destiny fully understood. Their web, the, though tied forever to the post of ego motivation, is too intercreated no, to be perceived as a single thread. Only great masters can see it with clarity. It is visible to them in all its workings, not from within the tangle, but from above in superconsciousness. As Sri Krishna said in the fourth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, he who beholds inaction in action, and action in inaction, is wise among men. He is one with the spirit. He has obtained the true goal of action, perfect freedom. Those through Holy Scripture God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om, Om. Morning, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm very grateful to be here, to be with you today. 
be back in Ananda Village after some time away. My name is Atman, and this is Bhakti Marg, and we'd like to welcome you all, especially those who are with us as visitors for the Thanksgiving weekend, and those who are watching with us online. So I'd like to start with a reading from Whispers from Eternity, Prayer Demands by Paramahansa Yogananda. Demand not to be enslaved by the ego or by ego-centered passivity. I want to use my own will, but guide it forever, Father, toward the golden paradise of all fulfillment. For I would be infinity's smiling child, confident of being imprisoned no longer behind bars of fruitless desire and withered hopes. I would break the shameful cords of lethargy that have presumed to hold me and step fearlessly into freedom. Released, I now blaze my way through forests of every limitation and delusion. Oh, my little vain ego may strut proudly, saying, Behold my glory, worship me. But I will look through its transparent, transparent form and behold thine unimaginable, unimaginable beauty clothed in the subtle form of the whole universe. The silent tune hearing of my soul will ignore that tiny boasting masquerader, my little self-impersonating thee and will listen rapturously to the wind-borne, fragrant music of thine own matchless voice whispering across the ages, I am he. So, as many of you know, we've returned recently from a time away from Ananda Village, a bit of a sabbatical where we visited uh, Europe and India and China and visited a number of devotees. And since I've been back, I've been sort of trying to make sense of this whole experience. And the lens that we have as our reading today, the lens of karma and understanding karma and actions is a, is a good way to make some sense of that. So I'm gonna try to share some of the lessons that I've learned and some of the things that we've been experiencing over the last uh, 10 weeks. So when we, when we left on this trip, it was something that I was ready to take some time off. And after having done the master plan here and had a chance to travel with our son who had just finished college and had a chance to do this uh, with scamming the airlines by doing this all with points which I had been collecting. So it was a whole series of things that, that led to this and it sort of grew from uh, a trip to Italy to a much larger thing and ended up going around the world. But it was uh, <coughs> sort of questioning at times, well, why am I really doing this? If I'm you know, taking some time off, what should I be doing? Well, I should be meditating and being with like-minded souls in a quiet, sattvic place and trying to tune into holy vibrations and great inspiration. Well, the best place to do that is probably right here at Ananda Village. <laughs> I can tell you it's not necessarily <laughs> traveling around airports and uh, moving and being in lots of interesting situations. It's not the most quiet, sattvic thing to do. And so I was worried, well, is this just my own restlessness that I would want to do this? Because I actually have, in my past, the karma of actually having traveled quite a bit. I have, uh, 
I spent a year living in France. I spent many, month, many months in Spain, the home country of Bhakti Marg. I spent, I've been in India five different times, living there for up to three or four months at a time, and in Tibetan India and Ladakh. I've traveled in Asia and Northern Africa. And so, you know, is this just a return to that restlessness? Because at that time, it really was some restlessness. It was looking for some answers in my life that there was this hollowness, there was this lack of meaning that I didn't really know what it was or how to put a finger on it. And I thought maybe by seeing other people and other cultures that there'd be some answers. And I did actually at one point have a very clear revelation, but it wasn't any place that I was that was giving me this. It was the fact that my own mind was driving me a little crazy and it was impossible to escape this mind and I really needed to do some meditation. I was, I have this very clear memory. I was in Tunisia and by myself traveling and I was just having this constant dialogue going on, which is sort of normal with, well, that's nice and that's not so nice and that's kind of dirty and why do they do that? What does that look like that for? And who is this? And all of a sudden, you know, it hit me. He said, you know, Peter, what are you doing? Stop. All you're doing is driving yourself crazy. Nobody cares what you're thinking. Nobody cares about your judgments. You're not going to change anything. You just are driving yourself crazy. And at that point, I realized, yeah, what I really need is to get control of this mind and meditate. So for the last 33 years or 34 years, I've been meditating ever since that experience. And hopefully, I've learned a little bit more. And I would approach travel slightly differently. So one of the things that was in the reading today is, is about our karma and how all these past actions and thoughts and desires and likes and dislikes really create who we are. That's really the, the, what, the little threads that form this ego, that form this life. And it's something that, it's like an impressionist painting. You, you start with a beautiful white piece of paper. This is clear, pure, unexpressed, divine bliss. And then you come into incarnation and through many, many lifetimes, you start adding little dots of paint onto this canvas. And pretty soon the canvas gets pretty covered and then you put other dots on top of those other dots. And sometimes little forms emerge and then you put in some more little dots of paint and you get some dots of paint from your neighbors and your family and your culture. And, you have this, this wonderful blob of things <laughs> that you start trying to make sense out of. You, try, you start trying to form an identity, and that's the ego. That ego identity is formed by all these past actions and thoughts and karmas, and we bring that from one lifetime to the next, and it just stays with us. And one of the things that I realized, or I came to make some sense out of all this moving around the world was trying to loosen a little bit or be aware of how much energy goes into creating this little tapestry of the ego consciousness. Because when you're in your, when you're in your normal environment of where you live, you don't realize how much the habits and the things that you put in there help define you, all those self-definitions that Swami talks about. And we kind of get ossified. We kind of get stuck in this thing. And 
that's great. The ego loves that. The ego loves to be stuck because the ego is fundamentally insecure because at some level it knows it's not ultimate reality. It knows it's just a little bunch of little dots on a painting or just a bunch of little self-identification. So it spends a lot of energy trying to keep reinforcing it, trying to draw up the wagons and make sure nothing's going to attack this little ego. And it does a really good job of it, especially when we're in our normal routines and with our normal people and we know how to react and we know what's going to happen next. Well, when you go traveling, it's like a little bit like uh, this image came to you. It's a little bit like, like being reborn. So every time you're reborn, you have to leave behind a whole lot of habits that helped reinforce this ego. And you have to start learning new ones. And so traveling, it's a little like that, only you get to bring your memory with you. So at least you know a little bit about what you're doing and where you are, but you're still asking of like, okay, where's my next meal gonna come from? Why are these people speaking this language? How do I understand what this is going on? How do I move from A to B? How do I take a shower? Is there a shower? <laughs> Can I drink the water? Am I going to get dehydrated? Can I keep my stomach alive? So all these things come in to replace what's in your day-to-day -day thing, and you realize how much this ego just really wants to be secure, wants to know what's going on. And I had to laugh at myself because I, I'm a guy who kind of likes to have the big picture and likes to have things in place. And when you get stuck in a new place, especially if you don't understand the language or you don't really know what's going on. Well, you never really know what's going on, but <laughs> it's even hard to make up what's going on. But your mind keeps trying to make up what's going on out there, and it'll, it'll pick on really little things and start forming them back into a picture of, of what it's like to be here. And like, you know, we went to visit this little village in southern Spain where one of our devotees has a wonderful yoga center. And, and you know, I'm sort of looking at this little village and thinking, oh yeah, here this is, there's all these, these derogatory comments about the life in a little village and gossip and you know, all these people, all their jobs are going elsewhere and they're stuck here in this village and the youth are having a hard time. And you know, all these things I just started making up because that was the story that, I, that my ego wanted to tell. And it turns out, there's really wonderful people there who are just as on fire for God as we are. There's a wonderful yoga center there. There's, you know, not everybody, but there's a, an opening to this. And, you know, I was in, I was in China. We're looking out the hotel window and, and see this big line forming in front of a rather daunting looking edifice. And I say, well, these people must be lining up to get their rations or, you know, it's the communist government and they have to have their ration cards. They have to spend all this time in line and it's a, you know, must be a difficult thing for them. Well, it turns out this was a theater and, <laughs> and these people were standing in line to get tickets for tonight's performance. But, but you know, this, this mind just, it just wants to keep creating this story. Oh, another great one was we're in this, funky little guest house near Babaji's cave. And we're in just enjoying being alone, Mark and I, and all of a sudden this Indian family arrives. And Indian families tend to be rather expressive and boisterous at times. And there are a, bunch, you know, a couple little kids and a, obviously their father and mother, and then an older couple. And this guest house was uh, pretty basic. I mean, it wasn't particular clean, the bed was just a, a quilt on top of a platform. The location was great, but it was, you know, it was pretty basic. So 
you know, here comes this family, and, you know, I start spinning. I think, oh, my God, now here are the kids. They're going to ruin our, our, you know, our peace and quiet. And what are these people doing here anyway? And they must just be some, you know, some lost Indians or something. And, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, a few minutes later, Divine Mother has it that the, the grandfather of these kids comes over and introduces himself, and he gives me his card. He turns out he's a lawyer who is registered to argue in front of the Supreme Court of India. So this is not, you know, sort of your run-of-the-mill guy. And he was here to go to Babaji's cave as well, because he's a devotee of Babaji, sort of right-hand man in the, in the center in Delhi. And he had told me that he had actually had an experience of going to this reader, and it was a profound experience. Keshava had gone, and they had found a reading for him. So, you know, I said, oh, this would be interesting. I decided to take Mark and... Bhakti Mark had actually decided to stay sunning on the Mediterranean for a while while we were in India. She actually had gotten a little ill and didn't want to brave Delhi air until she had gotten a little bit better. So she wasn't with us at this point. And so we went to see the Augustia reading. And it's this house in Gurgaon in Delhi. And you go into the house and there's a waiting room. And there's all these South Indian guys. Augustia was a sage who is sort of uh, a bit like Babaji, ageless and deathless. I mean, he's dated back to at least a couple thousand BC. Some people put him, you know, much other times. Some people say he's still on his body. He's done many, many things. Uh, most of his time he spent in South India. And so this, these prophecies about people's lives were actually written in Tamil. And all the people that were there were these Tamil Brahmins, these Tamil priests. And so we sit, came, sit, sat down in the waiting room, and we had actually made an appointment, and we went up to the desk, and there's, there's I don't know, there's 20 chairs in the waiting room, and there's all these different people in there. And we go up, and they take our name, no birth date, no birthplace, no astrological thing. You take your thumbprint. So you put your thumbprint. I'm going, Augustia, 2,000 years ago, he was thumbprints? But that's the way they, they could see from your thumbprint if you had a reading here. So then they took our paper to the back and we sat there for a few hours actually watching various Tamil rituals on this LED television in front of us that were... <laughs> and, you know, the prime minister was at one of these rituals. So, it was, you know, these guys were, were well known. And every once in a while, someone would go into the back. And, and finally, they, uh, they called me and they said, uh, you know, we haven't found anything from you for you, for Mark, my son. Maybe we found something for you. So we go in the back, we go upstairs, and here's this uh, large open room with all these bookcases of these palms. They look like palm fronds that are bundled in little wooden, you know, there's little wooden top and bottom to them, and they're tied up. And they're, they looked a bit random, frankly, in all these, <laughs> all these bookcases. And, but this guy had one. For me, and it turns out, just so I, I'll, you know, I won't ruin the story, but I didn't have a reading there. But we went through this. He had about 50 of these leaves in this bundle, and he opens it up, and he starts reading some of the key things that he think might identify my life. Now, of course, this is in Tamil, so he's trying to pronounce Tamil as if it was a Western name, because he'd said, your wife's name is Edith, or your mother is... So we went through all these things, and unfortunately, I didn't have a reading there, but 
the whole experience was just yet one more blow to this ego who's trying to create these stories. Because I had actually talked to Hari and I talked to Keshava and in Swami, I don't know if it was this one or not, but Swami had had readings. Swami wrote uh, a pamphlet called uh, The Prophecies of the Book of Brigu. Brigu was another sage who had writ written these things. And I had actually been to another, another Navi reader previously where they, in Bangalore, where they did have some things for me. So it just, you know, you just have to stop and go, okay, a few thousand years ago, there's a sage who's writing things about people's life on palm leaves in little Tamil script, and I'm showing up in Delhi 2,000, 3,000 years later, and people are finding these things and giving prophecies and telling people important things about their life. Hari said it was, you know, it was very revealing to him, and he, he was very, very skeptical. He was just getting on the spiritual path, and he didn't give him anything. He, he would, you know, know like, well, no, it's not quite. He just, no, no, yes, no. And there it was. His life showed up, and he was given these things that have been profoundly helping to him. So right there, it just sort of, you know, what is this karma? What is this thing? What is this life we're leading? What is this little ego we've constructed if someone 5,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, can know what's happening in people's lives in a little house in Gurgaon in Delhi in, in little Tamil script that's getting translated. It just, it just boggles the mind and you just have to let go. You just have to remember and say, okay, you know, I'm not in charge here. There's something else much bigger going on and I just have to sit back and enjoy the show. That's something that's very, very good for us to remind ourselves here in our well-defined ego places of Ananda Village and wherever else we are, because, you know, what are you going to say to that? And what Swami says to that, it also brings up all kinds of questions about uh, predestination and free will. And Swami, I love in the, in the Bhagavad Gita commentary, he says, only the wise can know where predestination leaves off and free will starts. So I'll just leave it at that for now. <laughs> it's obviously a very interesting subject. And I think the one that helps me the most is you can always, we have the free will to choose, to choose our reactions, to choose to love God, to choose to go forward in that way. So I think a lot of this trip was about that. And in the Bhagavad Gita, this week's reading is from the fourth chapter. And a couple slokas farther on in chapter 22, there's this other one which really brought to focus what the heck I was doing on this trip. So he is free from karmic involvement, who is contented with whatever comes to him uninvited, who is even-minded and untouched by duality, who is without envy, jealousy, and animosity, and finally, who views success and failure with equanimity. Well... Traveling in India, this is uh, really sage advice because a lot of what you're doing there is just trying to maintain your equanimity in the face of a lot of different things coming at you, a lot of duality. So we arrived in India, and I was thrilled to be back in India. I just, you know, I just love it. There's some, I have some deep samskars, I think, and you know, I was uh, feeling a little bit elated, and so. We've arrived, 
And then 20 minutes later, I realized our baggage hadn't arrived. <laughs> so can I stay, you know, no animosity toward the clerk who's actually trying to take down all my information and who doesn't really belong to the airline that I flew with and they don't really have an office and he doesn't really fill in this number. I said, case number, don't we need the case number? No, 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 you don't need a case number. You just, it's all on the website. Oh, what website? Oh, with the website, right there, the website. So <laughs> we filled all this out and much lighter without our baggage, we made our way into Delhi and we had found out that our, that our luggage still was, um, they knew where it was, it was in London. Now, we had actually flown through Madrid to Helsinki to Delhi and hadn't even been to London, but ours, <laughs> our suitcase went to London. So I was still in bliss and feeling no animosity towards our, our thing. And that night, I, they even said, oh, here, have a, you have an allowance. You can go buy some clothes or things you need. I said, how do we get reimbursed? Oh, no problem, no problem. They will tell you. It's on the website. <laughs> <laughs> So in faith, I went out and bought some clothes. Mark chose to say, okay, I think I've had enough for my first day in India. But I just remember I got in this cab and was going to the mall in India to buy some clothes. I just, I just had this great sense of joy of, of just letting go of, you know, Divine Mother, whatever, you're in charge here. And this is going to be an adventure and it's fine. And so I got to this mall, which was the most Western mall I'd ever been in. I mean, the most luxurious. It puts you know, Arden Mall to shame. Of course, I don't go to the mall very often, but it was, you know, amazing. Western brands, and we got some clothes, and, you know, everything worked out. And our suitcases actually did arrive, and I actually did get reimbursed for the thing. <laughs> Just last week, I got reimbursed. <laughs> <laughs> but another, another one of the things it says here is to, you know, remain contented with, in duality, with what, whatever happens to come. And, I remember we had some, uh, we had some very, uh, we call them high duality days. <laughs> <laughs> so duality, of course, is the, the opposites of, you know, love and hate, heat and cold. And it was mostly heat. It was like a lot of heat, always heat, until it got really cold in the Himalayas. But anyway, there's all these opposites and, and things that happen. Uh, the first one was our second day in India. We went to see the Taj Mahal, and then on our way back, we stopped to see the Yogananda Charitable Trust in Brindaban. And this was duality to the max this day. First, we're seeing the most beautiful building in the world. And of course, there's like some mini dualities right there because as you're trying to see the most beautiful building in the world, you're also getting hassled by people who want to be your guide and want to sell you things, and you're walking down a street. This is, I mean, this is the showcase of India. This is, everybody comes here. They do, they're, you know, they put their absolute best energy into making it look good. And the streets are still in disrepair, and there's still piles of rubble, and there's still <laughs> trash in some places. But you just go, okay, it's duality. And they actually did a, they actually did a much better job of taking care of the Taj than when I was there some three decades ago. So from there, we went to Brindaban, and we had arranged to meet Manjunath, the saintly soul who's in charge of the Yogananda Charitable Trust. And you've probably all seen the pictures, and they're doing an amazing work. Just They've hired a lot of people who are really tuned in to Yogananda, who are serving these widows, and they just, they're just you know, bright in their faces. What they don't show you in the pictures is that where they're doing their work is one of the worst slums of Brindaban. 
And so here we are walking to see all where all these widows are living and there's open sewers and piles of trash and animals everywhere and you know a fetid smell just I mean it was a slum and you know here are these shining ladies these people serving here's the Taj Mahal here's the slum even-minded in the face of all duality and my you know I was wondering how Mark was getting on with this on his first day in India seeing all this and He's kind of a laid-back guy, and he just kind of, you know, stands back and watches. And he said, you know, India's really different. <laughs> <laughs> so another, uh, another real prime duality day was we were down in, in Chennai. At Chennai, Madras is where Dharmarajan and Dharmini are spending, are running a center, and they're doing an incredible work. There's many, many devotees there, and it's... Uh, it's really beautiful, beautiful work there. And it was Diwali, and Diwali is the festival of light, of the return of light into this world, and it's sort of like their Christmas, and there's lights and celebrations, a big holiday time. We had a potluck, a kirtan, and just, you know, wonderful, wonderful vibration. And then that evening, the custom, as you may have heard, is to light off firecrackers. Well. I'm not sure where this got started, but I'm sure it didn't get started in the industrial age where you could mass produce firecrackers in great quantity and size for a cheap price. Because what's happened now is it's turned into, it's sort of like a war. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only way I can describe it. So that evening, there's, you know, these bombs going off. They're like, it makes like, you know, the M80s of our childhood. It makes them look like little, you know, pumps. I mean, these, they also have the famous... Lack crackers. Well, lack, as you may know, is 100,000. It's a particularly Indian word for numbers. Well, they have, you can buy firecrackers that come in packs of 100,000 of these little, little crackers. So, of course, everybody's having a great time out there on the street blowing each other up or whatever they're doing. <laughs> Meanwhile, inside, the air starts to fill with gunpowder smoke, starts infiltrating into the house. There's noise, you can't sleep. And so we decided to take refuge in the Hyatt Hotel. We, <laughs> we actually left, and we got a cab, and we got up onto the 10th floor, and you know, we walk into the Hyatt, and it's, they're celebrating Diwali. You can light a candle. Here's a, little, here's a little offering they can give you. Here's some nice sweets, and they give you your nice room. The next morning, we have this incredible buffet breakfast, you know, Indian and Western and everything in there, having this, you know, wonderful breakfast while the, you know, the gunpowder smoke is clearing <laughs> outside. And it gets better. So then we decided we had made plans. We were actually going to go down to Ramana Maharshi's ashram, which was a few hours south of Chennai. So this you know, delayed our plans a little bit uh, because we had to let the smoke clear and finish our breakfast at the Hyatt. But we got into the taxi and you know, made it down to Ramana Maharshi's ashram. And beautiful, wonderful ashram, very, very simple. His Samadhi Mandir is there, and you can meditate there. A wonderful vibration master visited there, Arun Chala Mountain. We decided to have dinner there, and so dinner in Ramana Maharshi's ashram was you all file in, you sit down on the floor, they open a banana leaf in front of you, and a guy comes by with a bucket, a bucket of rice, you just, you know, boom, right down the line, and a bucket, you know, of dal. And they put that on there, and then you get a little piece of something else, and 
you just eat with your hands. And it, you know, it was just such perfect duality compared to the breakfast in a Hyatt that morning. <laughs> and here we are with the banana leaf on the floor in the ashram. And it was, it was great food, by the way. It was really good. And they were very good at serving. None of these lines or anything. They were just like, you know. <laughs> so those are some of our duality days. But you just try to remain even-minded and cheerful through it all and just realize I'm not attached, you know, whatever it is. Babaji is in charge here. And we spent um, a couple weeks looking for Babaji up in the Himalayas in the opening chapter in the autobiography says, you know, Babaji still inhabits the Badri Narayan area of the Himalayas. That's near Badranath. So we took a pilgrimage up there and we were looking for Babaji and we uh, were just surrendering. I was very much tuning into Babaji during this whole time. And as it says, you know, in that reading that things accept what comes of itself and not to be successes and failures. It just, it just comes. And surrendering to the divine, the Babaji, it just flowed incredibly well. We, got, we called up uh, the guide. who We weren't sure if it was available. He said, oh, yeah, I'm going to be in Rishikesh tomorrow. That's when we're arriving. Good, I'll take you in my car. We can go up there. We met the Italian pilgrimage. We, we spent a couple of days with them. They just happened to be coming through on tour at that point. We decided to go trekking to this lake, this very sacred lake up at the headwaters of the Alakananda River. And we didn't have any trekking reservations. We just said, Babaji, you know, if you want us to go trekking. And so Mahavir, the guide, calls up and he says, oh yeah, there's a group uh, leaving day after tomorrow, which is where we wanted to go. We just joined in. We went up to Satopan Lake. And this whole way, I was just, you know, really chanting, oh, Babaji, Om, Babaji, Om, Babaji. We had a lot of time to chant and do japa because we were with some other people who were not in that great shape. They were these Indians who really hadn't taken time to acclimatize. And we were at 14,000, 15,000 feet, which is about the height of Mount Whitney. It's not so easy to breathe up there. And so we went kind of slowly. But it was great because you just were in this incredible place. I just kept waiting for Babaji to come. And I was just, you know, Om Babaji, Om Babaji, Om Babaji. And, You'd see sadhus walking by up there, and someone might talk to him. And they said, oh, yes, Babaji. Babaji is here. You know, I haven't seen him, but he's here. There's stories about people meditating inside these mountains. There's sadhus. It's just an incredible vibration there. I mean, it, it wasn't also always easy to do kriyas at 14,000 feet, but, and it wasn't always easy to you know, have long meditations because it was below freezing in the morning. But you know, wonderful, wonderful vibration. And so I was just really trying to stay focused on Babaji. And it turns out we didn't actually see Babaji. And we came back down, we met Mahavir again, and we were going to go back down to Rishikesh, which is down the source. And in the end, I just had, I mean, I was talking to Mahavir, and we we're kind of weighing going back to Rishikesh versus going to Babaji's cave. And we had actually decided to go follow the Ganges back down and see some of the things. But then, you know, Babaji spoke through Mahavir and he said, you know, I don't think Rishikesh is that holy a city. I think Babaji is calling you to Babaji's cave. I said, okay, let's go to Babaji's cave. So, you know, another up and over the mountain on these roads where it, it crossed my mind that the reason I didn't have an Augusta reading was because this incarnation may not be very much longer. Because <laughs> those of you who have 
people who've driven in the Himalaya know it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a hair-raising experience. But since I wasn't driving and I had no control over whatever, I just, okay, Babaji, it's in your hands. And you're going over these things and you're looking down, you know, thousands of feet. But we made it to Babaji's cave. And, and I have to say it was, it was sort of a surprise when I got there because we had... There was nobody there or one other person. We had a chance to have a long meditation there and we managed to get the cave open ahead of time than when YSS wanted to open it, but it all worked out. It was all perfect. Babaji was in charge. And as soon as I sat down to meditate, I got this feeling or this, this sense of just surrender, you know, just, just offer yourself up and we're here here ready to receive you, Babaji. And this was, I realized, in a bit of a contrast to what I had been doing before with, you know, this own Babaji, own Babaji, trying to be, you know, the self-discipline, the focus, the, you know, I was really worried about the passage in the autobiography where Yukteswar uh, fairly extinguished Babaji in the ether due to his restlessness. So I was trying to not be too restless and try to be this you know, focus and do everything I could. And that's, that's good. But in the end, what is it that's going to really get us out of this karma? What's really going to get us out of this web that we've woven, out of this delusion that we're in? It's as Swamiji says, the whole of the spiritual path is offering up the ego into God's kripa, into God's grace. And that's what happened at that moment in, in Babaji's cave was, you know, all this other stuff is good. Keep doing it. But don't forget, we're here. Just offer yourselves up and you can get out of this delusion of karma.